From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, in a special episode, we look at the prospect of reopening schools in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. On the one hand, you have people who are just saying open schools, end of story. And that really can't be the end of story. We welcome Johns Hopkins University's Dr. Joshua Sharfstein and later Chiefs for Change CEO Mike McGee to discuss one of the most difficult educational challenges in American history. How and under what conditions do we reopen schools in the wake of a global pandemic? And what resources will districts need to offer safe and effective instruction in the months ahead? If you're going to social distance on buses, you've just dramatically increased your transportation costs. Do you have to procure plexiglass dividers in order to set up your rooms properly? I can tell you there's not an elementary school classroom in the country that's set up for social distancing. We also discuss some evidence-based recommendations and free resources available to states, districts, and schools as they plan for the fall and beyond. That's right now on Research Minutes. Welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith Miller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. Uh, we begin today by welcoming in Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement with the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Sharfstein. Thanks so much for having me. So in early June, you published an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association titled, The Urgency and Challenge of Opening K-12 Schools in the Fall of 2020. In it, you offered a framework based on a wide range of, of health and education research, as well as guidance from the Centers for Disease Control, with six key recommendations for states, districts, schools, and communities. Uh, we're talking now at the end of July, and it kind of seems like a lifetime has passed since that article came out. So to start, I'm, I'm curious, has your thinking about school reopenings or your recommendations for stakeholders have they changed in recent weeks as we've seen these large instances of community spread and record numbers of new cases reported in many areas of the country? Well, I would say that from a big picture perspective, my thinking hasn't changed in that the big picture is schools are really important for kids. In-person learning particularly helps younger students, but really helps all kids. But at the same time, we have to be worried about the coronavirus. And so the pathway to reopening is control at the community level and precautions at the school level. And so that's what we wrote in our paper, and I still believe that to be the case. Now, since that time, some of the details have shifted a little bit. Well, what does control at the community level mean? Well, we've seen a loss of control at the community level in many communities in this country since then, uh, particularly in the South and the West. And I think it is going to be hard to open schools when you have so much intense community spread. And then what do precautions mean? And there have been some modifications to that a little bit based on some new evidence that's come out. But basically, it means reducing the number of other kids that a child will be in contact with by having a cohort of students and, and, and a teacher. It means increasing spacing if possible, wearing masks if possible, extra cleaning, and a strong response to illness that may happen. 
you know, if all those things are done, I think you really manage to lower the risk quite a bit. And you're still going to have to be vigilant because there's still a lot we don't know. I want to talk a little bit more about your specific recommendations in a minute. But to start here, I, to say that school reopenings have become a topic of debate would be just a little bit of an understatement. Um, the Trump administration is currently, as we speak, pushing schools to resume in-person instruction, in some instances, even threatening to withhold funding from schools that don't. And many stakeholder groups are pushing back out of concerns for public health. The American Academy of Pediatrics, and we actually had the chance to speak with Academy member uh, Dr. Nathaniel Beers back in May. They made the, the valid argument that prolonged absence from school poses its own risks to students, but then they qualified that statement by saying that schools should reopen only when they can do so safely. As we move into August and September, how do you think states, districts, and schools should be weighing this decision to welcome back students to class? I think they should be trying to find a path in between the political extremes that exist right now. On the one hand, you have people, unfortunately, I think, uh, president included, who are just saying open schools, end of story. And that really can't be the end of story. And I think people in this country realize that there are serious risks, and there are risks not just to teachers and staff, but, you know, what about if a child brings COVID home? And the rare cases when children get really sick. Those are all risks. On the other hand, people who say we can't tolerate any risk at all, that as long as there's a scintilla of a shadow of a risk, we can't open schools. Well, I don't think that makes sense either, because, you know, we are taking necessary risks all the time, and we have to be able to take reasonable risks in order to be able to get the benefits from them, including very serious benefits for kids. So if you can avoid those two extremes, you have to figure out what you have left. How can you work together with other people in the community to bring down the level of overall spread and come up with a plan that allows for appropriate precautions to be taken? Now, in order to do this, I think it's worthwhile to spend resources. This is a really important thing for kids and for the future of the country to not have a huge problem um, with the next generation. So, you know, you've got to spend money. You've got to spend money for more space, for more staff, for more transportation options, for better testing resources, for more PPE, for cleaning supplies. All those things cost money. And we have to be ready to spend that money if we want to open school as safely as possible. As we speak, some school systems are currently planning to resume full-time live instruction, while others are planning a mix of remote and in-person learning. Uh, what measures should those schools be taking now to prepare for returning their, their students to classrooms, to hallways, and even cafeterias this fall? Well, I think... There are all kinds of new structures that have to be put into place. It's really important for families to check that nobody's sick at home, the child isn't sick, before sending the child to school. They need to send the child to school in a transportation system that probably is going to assign seats and hopefully have some increased spacing. Then when you're at school, kids should be brought in at different times in specific groups and stay with groups of students during the day and uh, particularly in the younger grades, and kids who can wear masks should wear masks. So all that means is, you know, a lot of change from a typical school year. And because of the potential that people will get sick, it's important for the schools to have the flexibility to go virtual, you know, if necessary for a period of quarantine. Um, and the schools should be able to have an all-virtual option 
for families that have a very low risk tolerance or teachers who are particularly at risk from COVID. So it's a lot. It's a lot to ask for. And sometimes I wonder, like, is there is there a middle path? Do you have to just totally go all in or say never? But I think it's possible. And I think if you look at other countries, you can see that it's not only possible, that it, but that it can be successful. In your article back in June, you encouraged those school systems employing a hybrid model or that are going totally remote to approach their curricula differently this year. What changes should they be considering in order to avoid some of the problems that we saw this spring? So I wrote that article with Christopher Morphew, who's the dean of the School of Education at Johns Hopkins. And he had us a strong view that the curriculum here really matters, that you want to pick a curriculum that can uh, be a little bit flexible for in-person or at-home learning. And he thinks that really taking a look at the education materials that'll be used is something that schools should be doing this summer. And really training teachers to be able to do uh, remote learning is something that's really important, just to be prepared for all situations. And we've talked extensively on this podcast throughout the pandemic about the need to address academic loss, particularly for those students who were already at risk prior to the pandemic. Given all the other challenges that school systems are facing, not only relating to student and employee health, but to workforce challenges, budget shortfalls, things like that, what can schools realistically do to address those academic losses and offer support to those students who are going to need it most? Well, I think you're putting your finger on a really serious problem, which is that even if there's some in-person learning, there could still be a lot of academic loss. I mean, because you're comparing against full in-person learning. And there are some kids who are particularly at risk, who really don't have the ability to log in and work diligently at home for a whole host of reasons. I think it's really important for school systems to prioritize them as best they can. I don't know if there is a solution that's going to make up for all the academic loss that's going to happen. I think we may be in a situation where we're trying to minimize it. Uh, but this is a, a really serious challenge. Ultimately, my view is that, you know, if you take a step back, kids in this country weren't doing so great before the pandemic. We have enormous educational disparities. We have crazy high amounts of child poverty. There are all kinds of struggles that kids have in this country that we tolerate that many other countries don't tolerate. And kids have sacrificed an awful lot, and they sacrificed it in order to help other people in our society at much higher risk of serious illness or death. And I think the way to repay kids is not to force them to go to schools that are not prepared for the coronavirus, but to really fundamentally realign our priorities for investing in kids. I think we should have a national campaign against child poverty. I think we should eliminate um, terrible and unjust disparities in the educational system, which include just grossly inadequate school facilities. Like that's the long-term investment that's going to make it up to kids. I don't think there's a short-term solution that's going to um, address really um, the learning loss and other things entirely. Dr. Joshua Sharpstein once again is Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement with the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. Thanks so much again for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. So with so many competing demands and challenges, how can we realistically expect schools to create a safe, supportive, and effective learning environment for their students beginning this fall? We welcome in Mike McGee, CEO of Chiefs for Change, which is a bipartisan nonprofit network of state and district education leaders across the country. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. 
Happy to be here. Throughout this summer, much of the conversation, as we both know, has focused broadly on um, what schools should be doing. So resuming in-person instruction, adopting a hybrid or fully remote approach, logistics for PPE, physical distancing, those kinds of things. But now that we're kind of on the doorstep of the 2020-2021 school year, we're faced with some different questions, namely, what resources will schools need and what resources are available to adopt all those policies safely and effectively? Um, So to start, could you maybe just give us a quick overview of where we are now? What kind of support have schools received so far in, say, federal coronavirus aid? And do you think it's enough? Well, it certainly is not enough. Uh, Most uh, school districts of any size did receive a first round of stimulus funds uh, that were certainly helpful. And they went towards uh, paying for a variety of things, including the improvised effort, truthfully, to make sure that all students were connected to the internet during the spring, uh, distributing literally tens of thousands of laptops, Wi-Fi hotspots, uh, to make sure not only that kids were connected for learning, but that school districts truly had a line of sight on every child. Because as we discovered, and as district leaders have known all along, you know, millions of students across the country depend on their schools for all of their meals. We have hundreds of thousands of students um, who are home insecure uh, and unsafe in their homes and where school is, in fact, the safest place that they can be uh, over the course of a day or a week. Um, So all of those things needed to be attended to. As districts started to think about what reopening would look like, of course, there was a whole additional round of added expenses that they had to account for. So can you give us some sort of concept just on how much um, support schools have gotten so far? in terms of the first, I guess, tranche of coronavirus aid? So there was, you know, tens of millions of dollars that went out in the first stimulus package, um, the CARES Act, that was earmarked for school districts. Um, And of course, that gets distributed widely across 14,000 school districts in the U.S. So it was a meaningful amount of money, uh, but not nearly enough money. Uh, The HEROES Act and the version of it sponsored by Majority Leader McConnell, which was just um, put forth in the Senate, provides additional money, um, although there are strings attached to that money uh, connected to reopening and to students physically getting into classrooms that we feel like does not provide nearly the kind of flexibility that school districts need and that they deserve in order not just to make sure students are learning this year, to ma- but to make sure they're healthy and safe. So as it's currently written, we believe that Senate bill needs to change. We obviously have portions of the country in places like Florida and Texas where it's simply unsafe to bring kids back into school buildings because of the nature of the pandemic there. Districts should be able to make choices based on the health and safety of their student populations and their communities with good guidance, ideally, from the CDC and state and local health agencies. I do want to talk a a little bit about the proposals that we've seen in the Senate and the House um, a little bit later on, but uh, you were just mentioning school needs. And I know that in June, uh, three Chiefs for Change members actually testified before Senate and House committees on the needs and challenges that uh, they face in their own school systems. 
So I know that your rep, your members represent a diverse range of districts across the country, but could you maybe give us a sense of what the biggest or the most prominent concerns are for schools as we approach the fall? Sure. So, you know, as we know, there, there are some ways that science is telling us to reduce the pandemic in local communities. And a lot of what has to be figured out is the degree to which local communities will comply with smart strategies for protecting folks against the virus. If you can get anywhere near 100% compliance with wearing masks, for instance, that gives you a higher degree of likelihood that you can not just get students into schools, but keep them there safely. If you can't do that, then you're thinking about other strategies like social distancing. And then if you're thinking about social distancing, keeping students six feet apart at all times, you can't actually fit all your students in, your, in an average school building. So now you say, okay, we used to have 500 students in a school building. We can only fit 300. We'll have to adopt an A schedule and a B schedule for schooling, which means kids are not going to school for the same amount of hours at home. And now we need a virtual learning platform so that students can learn from home as well. So you can see how each decision you make about what you're able to do has a downstream effect that you need to account for. That is part of the deep, detailed scenario planning that's going on right now in all the districts that Chiefs for Change members lead. And we've created a set of uh, scenario planning tools to help them do that for every aspect of the design challenge that they are facing right now. I'll give you just one example that's part of those scenario planning tools. One of the most difficult things to figure out from a health and safety perspective is uh, busing, transportation. If you take a, uh, a fictional student, uh, we can call him Malik, and uh, Malik gets to the bus stop and waits for his bus. There's a whole bunch of questions that you have to answer in order to be ready for school to go back in. You have to ask, what if Malik shows up at the bus stop and he forgot his mask? Does the bus driver have masks that they can distribute? If they don't, is Malik allowed to get on the bus? What happens if Malik shows up at the bus stop and he has a fever? Do you let him on the bus? If you don't let him on the bus, does the bus have to wait until a parent or guardian arrives to pick him up? If Malik has a brother who doesn't have a fever, can that brother go to school or does the brother stay back with Malik? If you let Malik on with a fever, how do you quarantine him on the bus? When he gets to school, what do you do with him? Every one of these questions has to be answered in order to avoid chaos when school returns. And there are hundreds of questions exactly like those that have to be mapped out to the last detail. Again, not to bring back kids back into school because on day one, you can sort of do anything you want and get them into schools, but to sustainably have kids in school throughout the year without getting sick um, in an environment where they can learn is an enormous challenge. Um, so those are all things that are going on right now. There's four design challenges uh, connected to learning that we have detailed in a report that we put out recently called The Return. And those are redesigning time, how your calendar year works, how your daily schedule works, redesigning the role of every adult in your school building to meet the needs of students in this very unusual situation, redesigning your curriculum 
and the way that you support teachers to deliver instruction, and then supporting the social and emotional and mental health needs of students, which are likely to be significantly greater as students return back because of the impact of all of this isolation that they've been experiencing, because many of them will be grieving due to the loss of uh, people who are close to them because of uh, the pandemic. And um, we're going to need more support for students in those areas. So that design work is ongoing uh, across Chiefs for Change membership. And what you're trying to do is design in all of those areas. So ideally, they're mutually reinforcing in support of students. The work you just described sounds um, not only daunting, but to be crude about it, expensive. Um, And, uh, you know, I was hoping that we might be speaking after the passage of a a second federal coronavirus aid package. But after some delay in the Senate, uh, for disclosure, we're speaking right now pretty much at the tail end of July. And we saw some delay in the Senate. And now, you know, there's really, we don't have a firm endpoint for when the House and the Senate might agree and finally pass a bill that provides new aid to schools. Um, So this is probably still a bit of a difficult question to answer, but could you give us an idea of what kinds of funding or how much funding your members think schools might need to effectively and safely address all those needs and all those challenges that you just mentioned? So it's a very hard number to ballpark. Um, What our organization has uh, told members of Congress is that this next round of stimulus needs to be at least $100 million directed towards K-12 systems if you are going to get anywhere near capturing the need of school systems. And again, there's some very obvious expenses. If you're going to social distance on buses you've just dramatically increased your transportation costs. You know, do you have to procure plexiglass dividers in order to set up your rooms properly? I can tell you there's not an elementary school classroom in the country that's set up for social distancing. You know, over the last couple of decades, the, you know, the furniture choices of elementary schools have tended towards kidney-shaped tables where everyone sits right next to each other. So there are furniture costs that are substantial. There's new staffing costs and, um, of course, PPE for teachers and, and other staff and, and a wide variety of other costs associated with this pandemic. Everyone is planning for some amount of distance learning for their students come this year. And that also requires standing up virtual learning platforms, which um, many districts didn't have prior to this. People made use of a variety of things in the spring in a somewhat ad hoc way. But Chiefs for Change members right now are telling me that they are designing their virtual learning uh, system permanently now. And the metaphor that that, uh, one of my members has used with me is that it's like the HOV lane on a highway. You build it forever, And once it's there, it's a permanent feature of your highway. That's what virtual schooling is likely to look like going forward. People are not designing one-year solutions. And I think that's wise. We're going to have some amount of virtual learning going forward, I I think, permanently. And it's important that that system be of very high quality. And, and of course, that's expensive as well. Your members meet regularly, uh, virtually now, of course, um, to discuss and share their plans for the upcoming school year. And 
Cheese for Change has actually set up a really interesting website. Um, it's at schoolsandcovid19.org, which provides regular updates on those plans. It's, it's a super interesting look real time on, on the thinking and the planning that's, that's going into resuming instruction this fall. So before we go, I'd just love to get your impression of the upcoming school year. Uh, do you think that we've learned enough from this spring, whether it's locally or on a national level, to get students back on track and ultimately to, to rebound from what, without question, has been one of the most challenging periods in the history of American education? Yes. I, I don't want to in any way uh, undersell the challenges. They are enormous. Uh, but I do think we know what we need to do. And again, the, the report we put out, the return, I think articulates very clearly the areas of work that need to be rapidly redesigned to support students. But if you have a system where uh, students are organized around small groups of 10 to 12 with a dedicated teacher or another professional who they trust and who can mentor them and support them, if you have high-quality curricula and a system for training your teachers to instruct on that high-quality content effectively, if you've reorganized your system so that kids can learn that content and be instructed on it, whether they're at home or in a classroom, and you have reorganized your time to accommodate that, and if you have identified a group of teachers with high levels of instructional expertise and subject area expertise who can instruct more students so that other adults are freed up to attend to the social and emotional needs of students, you have a real shot at having all of your students learn and be served well, not just this year, but um, for as long as this pandemic lasts and going forward. Those are big ifs, of course. They require leadership, they require capacity on your teams, and they absolutely require money and other resources. Um, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about the work that's going on across our membership now I've, I see new plans emerging every day. I just saw uh, San Antonio's plan, for instance, and I'm incredibly impressed um, with what they're planning to do, and I know they have great leadership there to execute. So it won't happen all at once. I think we'll see some school districts really lead the way, um, and others don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, part of the reason that we created that COVID19.org site our schoolsincovid.org site is so that even beyond our membership where we're facilitating a lot of sharing, um, there will be tools and resources that any school district in the country can use to enhance their planning for next year. Mike McGee, once again, is the CEO of Chiefs for Change, uh, and you can learn more about the organization and their members at chiefsforchange.org. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast or to subscribe to the series, you can find us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub.